Do you blame America's leaders for allowing COVID-19 to get out of control? Or do you figure they're doing the best they can with a viral pandemic that's like nothing the world has ever seen before? Turns out there are different ways of looking at risk and uncertainty. And whichever you tend to choose can tell a lot about your psychology, the way you're thinking, even your politics. Hello again, I'm Warren Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Craig Fox is Harold Williams Chair and Professor at UCLA Anderson. He's also Professor of Medicine at the UCLA Geffen School, and he's a co-founder of the Behavioral Science and Policy Association. He edits its journal. Among many other specialties, he is a student of risk and uncertainty. Professor Craig Fox, welcome. Great to be here, Warren. Let me ask you to look at another example of uncertainty and how it takes different forms. And I really like this one because it's so dramatic. We have President Obama and the raid on Osama bin Laden. Obama has called it the longest 40 minutes of his life. Two kinds of uncertainty there. Describe them. Yeah. So this was uh, April 29th, 2011, and he referred to it as the hardest decision of his presidency. There was a an interview that he did with 60 Minutes in which he pointed to two distinct forms of uncertainty, and that's what caught my attention. He says, you know, at the end of the day, this was still a 55-45 situation. We couldn't say definitively that bin Laden was there. So you're not sure, based on your intelligence, whether or not bin Laden is there. He either is or he isn't. And then second, he says, well, you know, something could go wrong with the operation. These are tough, difficult operations. And he appealed to uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980, trying to rescue the hostages in Iran. And that failed, had to be aborted due to a sandstorm and hydraulic problems with one of the helicopters. And, you know, you could run this operation multiple times and different times it's going to turn out different ways for kind of random reasons. And so really what Obama is pointing to is two different kinds of uncertainty, the inherently knowable, where the uncertainty is attributed to missing knowledge or information or expertise. And, and the inherently random, like I say, that, you know, you, you run these operations on different times, different occasions. It turns out a little bit differently for, you know, entirely unpredictable reasons. It may be the weather, it may be the equipment, it may be the performance of the team that comes in that varies on different occasions. And, and, and that's, that's like a roll of the dice. So how does this apply then to the example that I used at the outset, that uh, you either blame America's leaders because COVID-19 got out of control, or you figure, well, there's nothing they can do about it? Well, what we find in our research is that people intuitively distinguish between these two different dimensions of uncertainty. There's the knowable dimension or epistemic uncertainty, which is attributed to missing knowledge, information, skill, expertise. This is like uh, trivia, right? So uh, the, the popular show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The uncertainty is, is entirely in your mind about whether or not I have the right answer. And that's distinguished from random uncertainty or what we call aleatory uncertainty is attributed to chance processes, gambling, like the popular show Deal or No Deal, where, where the uh, money is in which suitcase is entirely random. So like I say, most uncertainty is a mix of the two, and we you know differ in our perceptions of how much uncertainty is attributed to each. So going to the COVID crisis, um, you know, we can differ in how much we see the spread of the virus as being knowable versus random. And indeed, sometimes you might read an article that talks about uh, contact tracing, and how the spread of the disease is noble, who gives it to whom, you know, you might have 
you know, a choir that's practicing and, and you see super spreader events uh, there. And, and it gives you the impression as if the, the uh, health officials should know more about the spread and, and, and therefore be more held more responsible for the results. On the other hand, sometimes we read articles that are more biostatistical in nature that create uh, chance models of how the virus spreads. And we find that when people read those kinds of articles, it, it makes them less sensitive to the outcome when ev evaluating the health officials who are making the decisions and setting the policy. It's really interesting because you're looking at, at different things. It's not just looking at them in different ways, but but uh, you you really have a totally different interpretation one way or the other. That's right. And, you know, I mean, we can talk about pure forms of uncertainty, purely chance or purely knowable. But in fact, most uncertainty that we encounter in the real world is a mixture of both. If I'm a weather forecaster, for instance, trying to make a prediction about where a hurricane is going to make landfall a week from now, well, part of that is knowable. And part of that's inherently random because there's jitter or, you know, the Lakers are right now in the NBA championship and, and, and part of the outcome is knowable. The strength of the teams, the matchups, the coaching, part of its chance, you know, each team's shooting on a particular night is a little bit random. Do they make their three throws? What, what's their health status and so forth? Elaborate a bit on what you mean when we say you say we intuitively distinguish between these things. I take it this is unconscious. Uh it's sort of a mix of conscious and unconscious. I think we do it automatically. Um, we, uh, for instance, you see it reflected in people's use of language. I could say, Warren, that um, you know we could talk about the, whether or not the Amazon is longer than the Nile. That's purely knowable or epistemic uncertainty. And, and we tend to naturally use words like uh, I'm 90% sure or I'm fairly confident, right? Or I'm reasonably certain that the Amazon is longer than the Nile. It would sound very strange to say something like, I think there's a good chance that the Amazon is longer than the Nile or a high probability that it's longer than the Nile because neither is or it isn't. Now on the other side, it sounds more natural to say, I'd say there's a 90% chance that I'll draw a red ball from an urn containing one red ball and nine black balls. It would sound a little strange to say, I'm 90% sure I'm gonna get that red ball. It would sound like I'm being superstitious or something. So this really has interesting implications in the real world. For example, if you're doing a financial investing. Yeah, absolutely. We've done work with uh, investments and people's intuitions. And people differ, it turns out, on uh, the extent to which they see the stock market as inherently knowable, the movement of stocks or random. Interestingly, when we approached amateur investors with real investments, they tend to see both features in the market. These are not mutually exclusive. There's a lot of randomness in the market and there's a lot of knowability signal there. When we approached financial advisors, who one presumes are experts at the Retirement Advisor University program at Anderson, uh, we found that they actually see the market as random, very random, but not that knowable. In any case, there are individual differences in how people see this. And we find that how you see the market, the nature of the uncertainty in the market influences how you invest and how you manage that uncertainty. So the more you see the market as knowable, the more you're uh, interested in getting a financial advisor and getting more advice to manage that uncertainty, and the more you might pick individual stocks. Whereas the more you see it as random, it's more like a casino, the more you tend to diversify your assets to manage your uncertainty, the more sensitive you are to volatility in terms of making decisions and so forth. There's an irony there, it seems to me, because uh, you say that the people who know the most, namely are supposed to know the most, the financial advisors, are the ones most likely to see it as random? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not to say that financial advice is useless, but far from it. You know, you can get lots of advice on how to manage your assets, how to manage your 
uh, income flow at retirement, how to successfully uh, diversify in a smart way and so forth. So uh, plenty of room to get good advice there. You know, we, we not only are aware of these different forms of uncertainty, but we try and manage other people's impressions about them. We uh, ran a study recently where we looked at quarterly earnings announcements from a number of companies, and we just looked at the language that they use as a function of whether the company exceeded the consensus analyst forecasts or whether they fell short. If they exceeded the analysts' forecasts, then they use different kind of language, right? Because they want to make it look like we're deserving of credit because, you know, this is noble uncertainty. So they use words like model, predict, assess. And if they fall short, we see more uh, uh, aleatory random words, random, chance, black swan, things like this, as if they're trying to deflect the blame and it's all about luck. How does this apply to politicians who are making policy decisions? Well, we have actually started to look at that, and it was a, a long and uh, circuitous path we, we followed as we started to run a lot of studies, because originally we thought, well, maybe this random versus knowable dimensions yeah. uh, are important for people's political and policy preferences. You know, we hear about from uh, famously from Bill Clinton, it's the economy, stupid, right, that drives people's votes. But our, our intuition was that no, it's our lay theories about what affects changes in our financial well-being from one year to the next, which is about uncertainty. Um, it can be random, you know, it, maybe you win the lottery, maybe you get the right introductions and opportunities, or maybe a health crisis on the other side, or a robbery, you know, knocks you down from one year to the next. But it can also be knowable. And, and here's where when we followed the data, we realized we had to split our knowable scale into two pieces because it can be knowable in a good way, in a rewarding way, that good ideas, talent leads uh, families to do better from one year to the next. But it also can be knowable, predictable in a bad way where the system is rigged. You know, what side of the tracks you were born on, what the color of your skin is, uh, what country club your parents belong to might influence you such that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And what we found here, quite interestingly, is that people do distinguish these three independent dimensions, the extent to which they see the system as rewarding, rigged, and random. But those lay theories predict their politics, even when we control for a number of socio-demographic variables like age, income, gender, race, religion, and so forth. Um, the more rewarding you see the system, the more conservative you are, or the more likely you are to be a Republican. And the more rigged or random you see the system, the more liberal you are, the more you tend to be a Democrat. And interestingly, I should tell you that we discovered the secret sauce to predicting who those Obama 2012 and Trump 2016 voters are. They see the system as both more rewarding than typical Democrats do, but more rigged than typical Republicans do. And so the challenge is to message to both of those sensibilities if you want to win over those voters. It seems to me you're talking about the basis of messages uh, that we are getting every day as the presidential campaign heats up. Yeah. And, you know, and what we find is that like, if you see the system as rigged, then controlling for your politics and all the demographic variables, you like redistribution because if the system is rigged. You want to correct for systemic injustice. And so we saw a lot of that with uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, for instance. The extent to which you see it as random, you like risk pooling policies. You pool resources to help anybody who happens to fall into financial need. And the extent to which you see it as rewarding, like a t traditional Republican, the more you like incentivizing arguments like you know, fine, we'll pay for food stamps, but you have to be looking for work, or we might cover college education, but you have to keep your grades up, right? These are ways of, you know, holding people accountable. And in fact, if you want to cut across the political spectrum to appeal to a wide swath of voters, you need, you can layer these messages on top of each other. 
Like, for instance, tell a story about the American dream where anyone can get ahead regardless of where they're from, which appeals to the rigged sensibilities, um, but only if they're willing to work hard enough for it, which appeals to the rewarding sensibilities. And then from good measure, you could throw in something like uh, nobody should be a health crisis away from falling off their path to the American dream. Um, so that gets at random. And in fact, actually, I was looking the other day, Warren, at uh, speeches from the Democratic National Convention where Biden accepted the nomination. And you see, like when Obama accepted in 2012, he says, the basic bargain at the heart of America's story is the promise that hard work will pay off, that responsibility will be rewarded, and everyone gets a fair shot. Everyone does their fair share, and everyone plays by the same rules. So you see, he's, he's hitting both those rigged notes and the rewarding notes, unlike a typical Democrat who would only talk about how the system is rigged and we need to unrig it. And then you go to Trump in 2016, and he says in his acceptance speech, Every day I wake up determined to deliver for people who work hard but no longer have a voice, right? So it's, it's unusual to see a Republican hitting those rig notes. And he talks about how millions of Democrats will join our movement because we're going to fix the system so it works for all Americans. In Biden's speech, you see him hitting both notes where he talks about both the value of hard work, like his father building up a middle class uh, life for his family, and also the need to correct for economic injustice. And then, of course, everybody wants to have it both ways. We have uh, both Trump and Elizabeth Warren uh, using the term rigged all the time. Right. And, and uh, you know, with, with Trump, because he's a, a conservative, people expect him to be talking about rewarding, right? That you need to take personal responsibility. You work hard enough, you'll get ahead. And that fuels some of the resentment among a number of conservatives that uh, some people are getting these free handouts that they don't deserve. But yet he is sort of hitting the note, no, the system is rigged and we need to unrig it which appeals to a lot of those crossover voters, many of whom voted for Obama in 2012. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Warren talked so much about the system being rigged that maybe she would have appealed to a wider array of voters if she had hit a few of those uh, rewarding notes like Obama did in the speech excerpt I uh, read to you. So uh, back then to the issue of the extent to which this is unconscious or unrealized, it seems to me we're subject to manipulation. Yes, uh, I imagine so. We did some studies where we looked at how stock analysts uh, presented their forecasts. Now, this is interesting, Warren. It turns out that you could present the forecasts and the results in one of two ways. Either you can present the forecast quarter by quarter and then show the results quarter by quarter in terms of the change in the stock price, right, which would be the honest way to do it. Or you can present it in terms of the absolute stock price from quarter to quarter. And what's interesting about that is it's kind of misleading because when I predict next quarter's stock price, I know what this quarter's was. And so the correlation between my prediction in absolute terms of what the price is going to be has this built-in positive correlation since I'm, I'm making my prediction the basis of where it started. Whereas when you're predicting the change, the more honest way, you're emphasizing what it is I'm predicting relative to what we observe. When you present these stock charts in absolute terms, people have this exaggerated impression of the predictability of stock prices. And in fact, people are willing to pay more for advice from stock analysts once they see those kinds of charts. Whereas when you present it in the form that's a change quarter to quarter, the more honest way, they see that the correlation is lower. They see that it's less knowable and more random. And in fact, they tend to diversify more. Just interested in how would you apply this to the argument about mail-in voting? You know, it's always uncertain. It's always unknowable up until the election. But then uh, if you have a question about whether, in fact, uh, all the votes have been turned in and all the votes are being counted, there's another kind of uncertainty in place there. 
Yes. I mean, this gets to a whole other psychology about control and predictability. And certainly, you know, things that we feel we can control are more knowable. Things that we feel like that we can't control may be seen as more random. The Democrats are trying to get people to vote more by mail right now, and they've got lots of worries surrounding that because if people aren't sure that their votes will be counted, they may be less likely to vote. They may have an experience of feeling disenfranchised in the past, which can lead to a kind of a feeling of learned helplessness. So Democrats and their messaging certainly need to get people to see it as more safe, more predictable, yeah. that their votes will be counted, make them feel more efficacious, and of course, help voters from making the kinds of mistakes that will stop their votes from being counted, even if they reach the, the polling places in time. Let's look at some other ways that these things apply. Uh, one of them would be in business. And when you're trying to assess performance and evaluate performance, how do these things that we're talking about apply there? Oh, yeah. Well, like if you're in a manager, you need to choose how am I going to evaluate people? How am I going to compensate people? So we actually ran a study related to this, Warren, where we put managers in a hypothetical situation where they have, they're running a firm where people are making forecasts, right, on the basis of uh, sporting events and games and things like that. And we knew from pretests that people vary in the extent to which they see these games as being more knowable, the outcomes being more random. For instance, a seven-game round of chess competition between two players is not that random if you know something about the skill of the players, whereas the outcome of baseball, an individual baseball game has a lot of randomness in it. Well, it turns out that the more knowable or epistemic people saw the uncertainty in the prediction of, the, of their charges the higher the proportion of compensation they wanted to make performance-based, right? Makes sense because you're more deserving of credit for the times you're right and blame for the times you're wrong. But the more that they saw uh, the uh, prediction as random, remember these are not mutually exclusive, you can see both, they wanted to have wider uh, intervals between evaluation periods to kind of cut through the noise. So uh, yeah, it does seem to have some effect on people's intuitions about uh, compensation and performance evaluation. What about uh, trying to get doctors not to subscribe so many antibiotics uh, that we all become uh, uh, subject to a, a superbug uh, that has learned how to deal with them? <laughs> well, I'm not sure the role of uncertainty there, but we have done some work related to that. I mean, superbugs are a big public health concern, as you know, because if, if we're getting these bugs that are resistant to antibiotic treatment, then we're in big trouble. And that's become a, a major problem throughout the country. Some of the work that we've done in my group has been about trying to nudge doctors to make better decisions. It's, it's a perfect environment to apply psychological nudges because doctors are making this important decision in a controlled clinical environment and it's mediated by electronic health record systems. So we, we did some work on this recently that wrapped up that was funded by the National Institutes of Health with a big team where we did a couple of things that were quite successful in, in nudging the doctors. One of the things that we did was we just simply gave them feedback. We told them either that they were a top performer in terms of their prescribing or they were not a top performer. And you do that measuring it by looking at, based on the diagnosis, was it a bacterial infection or not? And did they prescribe antibiotics? So if they prescribed antibiotics for not for just a virus, then they were not making a correct prescription. So we just looked at the proportion of the times that they prescribed antibiotics in a way that was justified or not justified compared to their uh, top performing peers, the top decile. And doctors are a very competitive lot. They care a lot about how they perform relative to their peers. So when they got an email 
once a month that said, you know, you're not a top performer. It engaged their curiosity. They opened up the email. They realized that they were being watched and they tended to improve. And we brought down inappropriate prescribing rates from about, oh, a little more than 20% at baseline down to about 4% after 18 months of sending them these monthly messages. So that was one thing we did. Another thing we did was we, uh, is we simply put a speed bump into their workflow in the electronic health record system where if they tried to prescribe antibiotics for a non-bacterial infection, they got an alert that required them to justify it. And that would be entered into the patient record. And, you know, of course, doctors, once they start writing up a cockamamie explanation, well, the patient wanted antibiotics, then they realize how silly that sounds. And they're worried about how that looks to their colleagues when it gets entered in the patient record. They, thinking twice, they they change their behavior. So there are a lot of ways in which these psychological insights can be applied to promote uh, public good, one hopes. Before we go uh, further or run out of time, quickly, what do you mean by nudge? Nudge. Well, there's been a, a long history now of psychological and behavioral economic analyses of how people make decisions. And since 2008, there was a landmark book that was published by Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein called Nudge that was all about how we can apply these behavioral insights to set up choice architectures, choice environments that preserve people's freedom of choice, but they kind of nudge them in the direction of, of making better decisions. And so this has become quite a big area of interest to quite a lot of people since then. In fact, there's been a lot of work that's been done by UCLA uh, colleagues of mine. I mentioned the antibiotics work that I've been involved in with Noah Goldstein. Also Shlomo Benartzi did some work with Richard Thaler promoting savings for retirement. We know that if you automatically enroll people into 401k plans, they're more likely to uh, participate than if you require them to opt in. Also, Benartzi and Thaler came up with a program called Save More Tomorrow, where if you get them to pre-commit to raising their contributions in ways that are synced with future raises, you can actually increase their contributions still further. Um, and that leverages some behavioral principles and has been shown to increase markedly the retirement savings among Americans nationally. Also, Noah Goldstein has used behavioral insights to try and get people to conserve electricity more. It's a concern right now in California with rolling blackouts during this heat wave that we're experiencing at the moment. Uh, so we've actually at the Anderson School, in particular, my colleagues in the behavioral decision-making area have been leaders in the application of behavioral insights to nudge people to make better decisions. Well, that's just fascinating. And uh, I gather we're being nudged all the time. <laughs> yes, we are. Consciously or unconsciously, it's there. It's, you know, Part of the problem with this research becoming very successful is it's been adopted sometimes for good, a lot of that in public policy now, uh, and sometimes for the profit of companies. I teach a course in uh, choice architecture that I just started this year, where uh, one of the things I show to my students is just a simple, you know, everyday bland nudge that was applied to me by Ticketmaster when I tried to get tickets for a concert because they're trying to get me to pay extra for some insurance to protect against what happens if I have to cancel. They used a lot of recognizable strategies to try and nudge me to do that. And thank God I recognize them. Otherwise, I might well have fallen prey to them to uh, pay for insurance I didn't need. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and uh, very much up to our title, How the World Works. Craig Fox, professor at UCLA Anderson, also at the Geffen School. 
co-founder of the Behavioral Science and Policy Association. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much. Well, I enjoyed it, Warren. It's a pleasure to speak to you after years of enjoying you on the radio. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you.